Huge hello to our church family gathered all over our city and an especially warm welcome to all of you who are watching online from slightly further afield. So, so glad you're able to be with us today. Now in a moment, I want to kick things off with a question. Uh, but before that, I'd like to pray and invite God to come and speak to us. Heavenly Father, thank you. You know our situation. You know what we're feeling and what we're facing right now. We want to calm ourselves to hear your voice and let your voice come to us with power, with authority, with hope, with help and with healing. We want to open ourselves to receive from you whatever you want to say to us. And we pray your word would bring life and transform us at the very deepest level. Amen. Okay, here's the question. If I could guarantee that you would find true lasting happiness if you simply listened and then went away and applied what I said in the next 25 minutes, would you be interested? Now, I might have got you wrong, but I'm guessing probably you would be. Now, at least because this really isn't a particularly happy time, is it? I mean, let's face it, the whole novelty of lockdown, it began wearing off quite some time ago. And if you're anything like me, you're desperately missing seeing people right now. Well, on top of that, most of us are just living with the pain of our hopes, our dreams, our plans lying in tatters, whether it's a job or a promotion that we're expecting, perhaps a house move, maybe a wedding, maybe it's exams that we'd work really hard preparing for, or simply a holiday we're really looking forward to. Then, of course, there's the very real grief that increasing number of us are experiencing at the moment over the suffering, even the death of a friend, family member or a colleague. I guess probably all of us can probably relate to at least momentary feelings of anxiety or fear as we desperately try to work out what on earth the future is going to look like. And so I reckon the promise of happiness is something that would be of interest to all of us and really that is what Jesus is inviting us into in this whole section of Matthew's gospel called the Sermon on the Mount. If you like in these chapters Jesus gives us this compelling vision for life that is both happy and whole. He, he talks about this overarching vision of life without which, I hate to say it, but all of our dreams and goals for life will inevitably end up falling flat and will end in disappointment. Now look, that's quite the claim, isn't it? But I would suggest that it is at least worth hearing Jesus out because I'd argue Jesus knows what it's like to be happy. And I think probably he could teach all of us a thing or two about wholeness. And really, in many respects, all he's doing in these verses is inviting us into a life like his. But the problem is, as we've been seeing over the last few weeks, Jesus launches into this description of life that is just incredibly counterintuitive to how we would tend to think of happiness. I mean, when we connect happiness with stuff, we think of the working out of all of our dreams and desires. It's a kind of situational contentment where all of our feelings are governed by our circumstances which I think incidentally is why our current situation is so incredibly challenging for us because it seemingly destroys all potential for happiness, doesn't it? 
Now, just to say, Jesus does not want to clamp down on all of our desires. In, in fact, quite the opposite. He wants to give you a brand new vision for life that, that leads to satisfaction at the very deepest level. So what Jesus is offering here certainly isn't less than the satisfaction of your desires. It's just a whole lot more than that. It is way more exciting than that. All that being said, let's remind ourselves very quickly of what Jesus says in these famous verses. Matthew 5, starting off in verse 1. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, these are famous verses. And really, what Jesus is doing in them is painting this picture for us of what it really looks like to flourish in life. He's, he's giving us the, this stunning vision for a happy and whole life that transcends all of our circumstances. And there are three sections here. In verses 3 to 6, Jesus speaks of a flourishing in the midst of lack. Now, in verses 7 to 9, he goes on to speak of a flourishing through fullness. And then in verses 10 through to 12, he describes this joyous flourishing, even when you're being hated and harmed. And what I want to do in the time that remains is simply explore this passage one more time, but under those three headings. So first of all then, what's it look like to flourish in the midst of lack? But I think we get a big clue in how Jesus launches this whole sermon. If you remember, he starts by saying, blessed, happy, flourishing are the poor in spirit. Now, look, who am I to question Jesus? But in my mind, this is just a terrible way to start a sermon. I mean, everyone knows you, you should draw people in with something enticing, shouldn't you? Not with something like poverty. You can't imagine, can't you, the crowds who had excitedly gathered to listen to Jesus slowly dispersing the moment Jesus utters those words, just like perhaps you might be tempted to go and make yourself a cup of tea right now or just start scanning through your Facebook or Instagram feeds. Because although I can't see you, I know what you're like. But please, please, please resist that urge because Jesus is beginning to teach us something here incredibly important about happiness and I suggest it cuts right across what our culture tends to think. I mean when we're talking about happiness we've been taught to think we should start by focusing on ourselves shouldn't we? 
that the whole message of our culture is there's fullness to be found within each of us and we just need to try really hard to draw it out. Basically, all the power, all the resources you need for life and happiness are found within you. But Jesus says, no, if you really want to be happy and whole, you must grow out of that mentality. You've got to come to the end of yourself. He claims that true happiness begins when you find and discover the emptiness of your resources. Listen, you cannot find satisfaction and meaning simply by looking inwards. If we persist in thinking of ourselves as healthy and self-sufficient and invulnerable and spiritually impressive, I suggest we will completely miss the flourishing life that Jesus is inviting us into here. You see, according to Jesus, true happiness begins when we finally wake up to the fact that my resources and my talents, my accomplishments and my successes just aren't cutting it. It's not bringing me happiness. It's not bringing me fullness. Certainly not leading to any permanent wholeness. We need to recognise that ultimately long-lasting happiness cannot come from me or my circumstances. And I think the reason why perhaps so many of us are feeling spiritually deflated or frustrated right now is because we're still stubbornly trying to follow Jesus without beginning here. Please don't miss this. Happiness begins in a place of neediness and emptiness and longing. And it comes not from resisting those feelings, but by accepting and owning and embracing our total inability to satisfy and fulfill all of our own longings. Because at the end of the day, blessed, flourishing, happy and whole are those who feel deeply their own poverty. Now, as we're going to see, this is going to shape the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, the rest of this vision of the life that Jesus has for you and for me. And so before we move on, I just want you to let it sink in. Jesus isn't pointing to those who are morally strong, who are remarkably talented, who are courageous, who are well-equipped. No, the entry point to this life with Christ is weakness. Those who inherit the kingdom of heaven are those who finally and fully grasp their own weakness and poverty. And I think the key word that's just pulsating through this whole sermon from Jesus is grace. The beginning of life with Jesus is always and everywhere by grace. But grace is only ever received by weak people who are conscious of their neediness and their poverty. Now, as we move through the Sermon on the Mount over the next few months, Jesus is going to keep giving us command after command after command. And what we're going to find is they are all pretty demanding, but they're certainly not for you to obey in order to earn your way to Jesus or for you to prove how impressive you are. They're for you to read and conclude, I don't think I can do this, and then bring your inability to him so he can provide his spirit to empower you. 
It is so incredibly important that we grasp at the very outset that this is not a life to live up to, but a life to live into with him. Now, I think all of this helps us make a little more sense of the rest of these Beatitudes of lack. For starters, it explains, doesn't it, why it's possible for happiness to be present even in a life of mourning and sadness. And when you recognise your desperate need for God, it, you're going to be meek, aren't you? Uh, I mean, it's just inevitable. You're going to be humble. You're certainly not going to live with a sense of entitlement. Uh, and those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, well, they're the people who now they don't have it in them, but they long for it. These are the people, Jesus says, who will be filled and comforted and will inherit the kingdom. In other words, God doesn't promise flourishing, happiness and wholeness to those who are self-sufficient and don't feel any need for help. Now, the Sermon on the Mount really isn't this celebration of high self-esteem, but rather of sheer neediness. So I just want to invite you into saying it is okay to be really weak and needy. It is okay to come to God with your grief. It's okay for you to come to God and fall apart. In reality, all of us need to do this at some point, because this is where we begin the journey towards flourishing and fulfilment. I think we consider all of this, there are two sides of the coin here. On one side, this is an absolutely breathtaking vision of grace, isn't it? Just to reiterate that this is not flourishing based on our performance. Certainly isn't a kingdom of those who are impressed with themselves or are desperately trying to impress others. From beginning to end, it is a kingdom of grace. It is all about humility and neediness. But on the other side of the coin, you do need to embrace your poverty and your neediness. And let's face it, that is hard a lot of the time. In fact, some of you, perhaps you're resisting this right now. Maybe you're thinking, well, that just sounds like a life of weakness and you don't want to be thought of as weak. But Jesus would say, you will not be happy and whole and you will not inherit the kingdom of heaven without this. And so on reflection, surely it's worth it. I'm guessing probably most of us aren't resisting this consciously, but nonetheless, unconsciously, many of us are still pretty self-reliant, aren't we? We're perhaps blind to just how much of what we do comes from a desire to impress others or to at least prove to others that we're worth something. And so, although really there, there isn't much in the Sermon on the Mount that we're going to disagree with, there is plenty that we might still find ourselves resisting. But this isn't something merely to agree with in our heads. This is something to actively live into. So if you wonder why your life is lacking in happiness and wholeness, it begins with recognising your lack. That's the first thing Jesus shows us here. And then he moves on to talk about fullness. Really, if there was a formula for human flourishing, I think it would simply be this. When we come with our emptiness, God comes rushing in with fullness. So secondly then, what does it look like to flourish in fullness? 
In verses 7 to 9, Jesus speaks of mercy, purity and peace. For starters, when we recognise our poverty and experience firsthand the fullness of God's mercy in Christ, surely it's inevitable that we will then give mercy to others, won't we? Likewise, for, for someone who has come empty and has truly experienced the fullness in Christ, I suggest that is then the one thing they're going to pursue from that moment on. And I think that is what it means to be pure in high. It's, it's this desire for one thing only. Like if something's pure gold, it means it's nothing else but gold, is it? If you remember, in the Psalms, David often speaks of having an undivided heart. I think it's the same idea, that those who are pure in heart will, will begin to take out of their life everything that gets in the way. So it's kind of tapping into all the imagery in the Old Testament about cleansing the temple of idols. In fact, there's the famous story in the New Testament, isn't there, when Jesus walks into the temple, there are people selling things, and what does he do? He cleanses the place. Paul, if you remember, in 1 Corinthians 6, simply says, your heart is a temple. Right now, I believe Jesus wants to come to you and simply ask, what do you need to take out of your heart that keeps it from wanting this one thing? Now, please don't miss the point here. Just to reiterate, this isn't just trying to live right out of a sense of duty. It's talking about someone who has experienced this wonderful fullness and now desperately desires more of it. So there's this ruthlessness with things in our life that just distract us or keep us from this fullness, whether it's what we consume or what we spend our money on or what we watch or our use of social media or habits that keep us from joyful fullness in God. And so with that in mind, over the next week, why don't you just take a bit of time to consider for yourself what things in your life currently give you a full sense of self-reliance so that you never or at least rarely go to God needy. What are those things? Or what are the things that distract you or keep you from going to Christ for fullness? Because the route to a flourishing, happy whole life is this single-hearted pursuit of Christ. And so Jesus speaks about mercy and purity of heart. And then comes this whole idea of peacemaking. Now, I think this is perhaps best understood as making people whole again. It's not just that people who are enemies are now friends. Reconciliation is certainly part of bringing peace, but I suggest it goes slightly further than that. It's all about people who are hurting and broken and wounded and sick and separated, being mended and made whole again at the very deepest level. And Jesus says that those who have experienced this wholeness will become agents of wholeness. Just to say, I think that's what will sustain us as we look to show kindness to our neighbours and our colleagues through this time. It's experiencing this deep wholeness from God that then propels us out to be bringers of wholeness to the people around us. It's like there's this fullness that overflows from people who have experienced the grace of God. 
And then we come to the third and final section of the Beatitudes. What does it look like to flourish in joy? Now, I don't know what you think, but I reckon this has got to be the most challenging part by far. Because Jesus speaks of rejoicing in the midst of persecution, insults and false accusation. And that seems like a bit of a contradiction, doesn't it? But Jesus says there is a way to flourish even when we're being attacked for doing the right things. Now, let's be honest. Living the way of Jesus will put us out of step with the world around us. And people will be threatened by our very presence. And so we will suffer at times. It's just unavoidable. Following Jesus always comes with conflict, both in our own hearts, because we, let's face it, don't always want to live this way. And the world certainly doesn't want to live us living this way. And so it comes with conflict. But Jesus says, although we'll be alienated, maligned and persecuted, he will be with us each step of the way, which means that we will still be happy and whole. Now, I know that sounds pretty counterintuitive, but costly, Jesus-centred living is really the only route to happiness and wholeness. Admittedly, you'll never feel self-sufficient. You will regularly feel needy. But as Paul puts it, his power is made perfect in you when you're weak. At the end of the day, happiness and wholeness doesn't come through being wealthy, being popular, being powerful. If we align our lives to Jesus, we're likely to end up with scars. But don't forget, we come to one who has his own scars. Jesus came weak, empty, frail. And at the cross, he emptied himself and was scarred for us. It's only a God with scars who can truly heal our scars. And then to take it a step further, it's only those of us with scars that can use the power of God to help other people with scars. And so putting all of this together, I think God allows us to experience hardship to remind us of our emptiness and our need for him. In his kindness, he allows us at times to, to go through these tough experiences to expose our self-reliance so that we truly turn to him and trust him. Which, let's face it, would be incredibly cruel if it wasn't for the fact that that is where we finally get to experience true happiness and wholeness. And really, that's what I'm praying God does in us through these deeply challenging days. Perhaps feels right now like a gift we didn't particularly want or think we needed, but my prayer is that it leads us into the arms of the only one who can truly make us whole. Because it's as we experience this wholeness that will be delivered from what Henri Nouwen calls a reactionary way of living, where our responses are always governed by our current circumstances rather than by the depth of our experience of God's love, his goodness and his acceptance. Now and describes how reactionary lives lead to empty and confused hearts, making us prisoners to a changing world. It's impossible to be truly loving with a reactionary spiritual life. With a reactionary heart, joy depends on circumstantial ease or success 
rather than being sustained through all the spheres of life. You know, I think what this season is highlighting for all of us is the sheer weakness of finding our happiness in our circumstances. I tell you, if we could just learn that lesson, come out of this time with a dependence on God that fuels an inner life of wholeness and happiness that sustains us through all the spheres of life, then not one single moment of this will have been wasted and will truly be set up for a life of flourishing. Let me pray for you. Father, we want to confess that there are things that are hard for us to receive here. Although it's all about grace, it's still hard for us to receive. And so I want to pray right now for those with hard hearts, for them to be softened. I pray for those who perhaps have come to the end of themselves, who feel pretty empty right now. Where even in this moment they're reaching out to you. Would you overwhelm with your love, your peace, your joy? Jesus, we want to say you are enough for us. Please keep bringing us to the place where we don't just know this in our heads, but experiencing it in our hearts.